0: all right we are live here with mark randolph the co-founder and first ceo of netflix among that he's also a mentor a best-selling author of the book that will never work and now a podcast host titled the same mark it's great to have you here and i'll let you do the rest
1: <laughs> Chris, thanks for the rest of the intro It's good No, I'll take over the show from here No, thanks Chris It's really great It's great to be here And um, and thanks for the intro And and I think that's probably short enough You know, I've, I've started a bunch of companies But largely now I spend my time Helping other people get their businesses going You know, try to use some of those same tips And tricks and techniques I've learned from 40 years And get people moving
0: Yeah, and I, I mentioned it um, that I found you through Gary Vaynerchuk's show when you were launching your book, I ended up buying your book. That will never work. I read it and loved the storytelling. Cause I've read a lot of books from, you know, big entrepreneurs, but you are a great storyteller and it reads very easily, which is good for me. Who's not that avid of a reader. So it, caught, it grabbed my attention and kept it.
1: Well, the funny thing is, you know, most of those, at least in my experience books written by company founders, are largely, should should all be called, look how amazing I was. You know what I mean? And uh, and, and I was trying to send almost, as I hope you saw, exactly the opposite um, message, which that so many of the things that we tried and did didn't work. That in fact, it was more a message of persistence and huge lucky breaks and trying to tell people that entrepreneurship is not you know being on shark tank and going to parties and <sighs> making lots of money it's this struggle to try and solve this really really hard uh hard problem so i wanted to bring people in and the best way to draw people in is with stories is to really say this is what it was like this is what it felt like and i had the advantage of writing that book 16 years after i left netflix yeah. so at that point I could pretty easily squeeze all the ego out of it and exactly. basically look, hopefully with a pretty clear eye at what my role really was. Yeah. Something else that caught
0: my attention. I noticed it on Gary V show and it comes across, you are a scrappy guy. And so <laughs> I love that. And so like the concept of turning a no into a yes, that really resonated with me just because I'm all about loopholes and finding workarounds and just finding ways to make things work. So can you give an example of
1: turning a no into a yes and just a little talk about that? Well, I'll give you a couple of them, actually, since I actually think it's almost a superpower. And uh, someone asked me um, a few days ago, what are some of the lessons you've passed on to your children? And I said, I I taught them really early on how to use the don't take no for an answer. But let me give you the quick answer of kind of where this kind of dawned on me how powerful this could be. And it's a story that took place when I was quite a bit younger and I was still in college. And I had no clue what I wanted to do, but uh, representatives from an advertising agency were on campus. And I go, that looks like that could be cool. (laughs) Now, the jobs that an advertising agency normally go to people with business degrees, with MBAs, but they were you know, feeling it out for undergraduates and I applied and I subsequently found out they's something like 2000 people applied or something crazy. Yeah. And I made the first cut and they flew you down to New York city to go to the agency itself. And it was almost like a job fair. I mean, there must've been 400 people who had been flown down for the day oh, wow. <laughs> and you had some interviews and I made the next cut. Then they bring you down and now there's 20 people. And they run you through this whole day at the agency and you meet, it's all interview now. And I made the next cut and now there's only four finalists for this account executive job. And the account executive job is the interface between the creative and the client. And I went through a much more exhaustive set of interviews and I didn't get the job. They said no. And I remember, you know, flying back upstate upstate New York and just so disappointed And then I kind of began going, I don't get it. Why didn't I get this job? What was I missing? What could I have done differently? And so I said, screw it, I'm just going to ask. And so I wrote a letter, because I don't think email was popular back then, but I wrote a letter to every single one of the people I had interviewed with, not just in that last round, but the entire um, (laughs) three days I'd been to the agency. And I asked them all basically the same thing. I said, I think I'd be great at this job. I would love to know what I could have done better or different. I'd like to prepare myself because I'm going to apply next year. Mm -hmm. And they called me up and said, uh, we'd love you to come down for another day. Um, So-and-so senior vice president would like to meet with you. And he brought me up to this huge corner office on the 35th floor, whatever it was. And he offered me the job. (laughs) And what I found out subsequently, which was the real kicker here, is that of the four finalists, they hadn't offered the job to any of us. Wow. And because the account executive job is a absolutely a turning no's into yes type of job. And they wanted to see as the final test, which one of us wouldn't take no for an answer. That's amazing. It is. It's an incredibly powerful thing. And I know we don't have a ton of time, but I've got to tell you just how it, it gets used in other practice. And it happens, my kids use it all the time. So one of my children, who will remain nameless, went to a elite little liberal arts school, tremendous pressure and competition to get into the best classes with the best teachers, as every right. young person has experienced um, yeah. if they go to a competitive college or any, any college. Um, and what would happen is they'd apply for this class and they get put on the waiting list or not even put on the list, they turn down, there's no space. Yeah. So they would just show up. They'd show up for the class. And that's not an uncommon thing. So the teacher would have the 25 people sitting in the seats and they have another 40 people against the wall. And the teachers would almost invariably announce, I'm sorry, this class is full. I do have a wait list of three people, but it's already spoken for, so there's no additional space in this class. And everybody would leave except for my kid. (laughs) And the next day they would show up and stand in the back. And the uh-huh. teacher would say, I'm sorry, there just isn't room in the class. <laughs> and they'd come back the next day. And it would not take too many days longer. And the, the teacher would finally say, fine, I'll make room for you. <laughs> That's amazing. It happened every single time. And it's an amazing thing. I could give you so many more examples that the sense of most of the time when people throw up the no, they're just setting a roadblock. This does not mean being obnoxious. This does not mean being pushy. This just means being um, persistent.
0: Yeah. And I think you struck on like the art of it is not being overpowering or pushy or somebody that like they don't want to be around, but making it so you're not stepping over
1: whatever line that is, but you're making yourself likable, you know? You're demonstrating not that you're a dick. Right. You're demonstrating that you want it. You're yeah. demonstrating that of all the 300 people who wanted to take this class, I really want to take this class, and fundamentally, I or I want this job, and fundamentally, what someone who's allocating a precious resource wants is a sense that the person they're going to allocate that resource really, really wants it, and it's not right. just being taken as a badge. I mean, I do a lot of uh, we're saying I do a lot of ment- mentoring, but I, I can't do a lot of mentoring. And so I set these very, very high barriers, not because I want the things I make people have to do to work with me, but because I want to help find a way to say who really wants me for my advice and yeah. not just because they want to have my name on their pitch deck. Exactly. That's awesome. <laughs> and you're still in the startup world pretty pretty much, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I said to myself, I never want to be one of those guys who just writes about it and talks about it, but yeah. doesn't do it. I mean, listen, there's a role for that. I mean, it's, it's a very academic. You analyze, you compare, and there's some value in that. But my value is not that. My value is the fact that I've been doing it for 40 years, the fact that I've started companies, that I've had companies fail. Um, yeah. And so I never want to lose that. But not even that, you know, one of the things you get, you figure out if you're lucky, um, you know, is what you're good at and what you really enjoy. And I really enjoy early stage companies. And, you know, here's the... A modesty warning. I'm pretty good at it. Yeah. Um, and so I do it. I stay in the startup game because that's what I, I love that. You know, and, and this part of it, you know, speaking with you, writing the book, doing the podcast where I'm mentoring other people live um, is because I also want to give other people that same chance that I had to have a job where you get to come in every day and solve really, really cool problems with really smart people yeah
0: and by being a practitioner you're able to i mean you're still in the trenches so you're able to speak about the problems because they're still happening you know and the
1: successes yeah and there's two things that come from that i mean i i you know i netflix was company number six and then looker which i did after that was number seven but even seven is a pretty small sample size a lot of the real learning took place after i left netflix and then began actively working with early stage companies because then you see all the patterns of what works and what doesn't work. So part of it of staying engaged is you. St- I'm still learning what are some of the patterns that go to help improve your odds that you can take that idea and successfully get it out of your head into the real world. But the other thing is you've got to stay contemporary. I mean, last <laughs> last night I did this. Um, I did basically a version of that. The that will never work podcast live on clubhouse. Yeah. And I I'd been in clubhouse rooms before I'd never run one and moderated one. And my wife said, she goes, I have never seen you this nervous in like, <laughs> in like years, but I was forcing myself to do something to do something that I was deeply uncomfortable about because the best way to figure shit out is to do it. Yeah. And And so I said, okay, let's just do it. And it was, I'm not sure what word, a shit show? It was like (laughs) chaos, but it was so fun. It was so engaging. The people who, and there's a big audience, a couple 20 to 2,500 2500 people, I mean, uh, who who responded are going, this was just so interesting and lively. And you go, wow, I have just learned in a very visceral way what works and what doesn't work in this medium, which I could have spent, two years reading and studying and asking and wouldn't have learned as directly as it did by plunging in, which is another reason why I stay active, but it's also why I encourage everybody who has an idea to go stop, stop thinking, stop planning and start doing something for God's sake.
0: And I think that's something that will resonate a lot. Cause there's a lot of healthcare workers that I'm connected with on LinkedIn. That'll be seeing this. So there are a lot of type a personalities and perfectionists, you know? So I want to take, we'll take a minute. To go over business business pivots in a minute and talking about pivoting, and then we'll talk more about your podcast. And okay, So I guess what advice do you have for pivoting? I think falling in love with the end goal and not being afraid of how to get there is really important. Whereas a lot of people go wrong with focusing on the how to get there rather than the end goal they're trying to solve.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a really interesting dynamic and I've been struggling to find the right analogy for it. And I, I've been it's an imperfect one, but I I do a lot of mountain biking yeah. and I it's there's a similar thing where you're going downhill on a single track trail. You would better have your hands pretty firmly on the handlebars and looking five to ten feet ahead Mm -hmm. otherwise you're going to go flying off the trail or certainly flying off your bike. But at the same time, you periodically have to look up and make sure you're going in the right direction. And a startup, in fact, any business is very much like that. You have the day-to-day stuff you got to pay attention to, but if you're not looking to what this ultimate goal, if you haven't defined clearly where you're trying to get, you're never going to get there. And you're right. What messes people up more than anything else is this fear of abandoning what they're currently doing to do something unproven, especially Mm -hmm. when A, they realize the thing they need to do is absolutely where the customer is going. And B, when they realize that in order to do that, I'm going to have to trash what I'm currently doing. You know what I mean? It's it's, so it's, it's 10% uh, innovative ability. It's 10% vision. It's 90% courage. It's saying I am willing to walk away from a perfectly good business model, because I can see this business model is going over the cliff in a quarter, or in a year, or in 10 years. And I can see so clearly how the world's moving and I've got to get there, but it's going to mean abandoning this. Um, And so pivoting is not something that you say, okay, let's see, let's schedule the pivot (laughs) for August of 2020, it doesn't happen that way. It's just, you see what's happening and you're trying to turn your ship to go that way, but you go, no, it's just dragging us down. I mean, a classic. I have a, a bunch of classic, classic examples. I'll well, use a Netflix one. Yeah. You know, at the very beginning, and I tell the story in the book, so you're familiar with this one. But you know, we sold DVDs too, mm. and because we were so this idea that everyone said that will never work. That's the name. <laughs> Lo and behold, it didn't. Nobody was running from us, but we were being saved because. People were buying DVDs from us mm. and they were buying a shitload of DVDs. That was 98% of our revenue. Wow. But a few months in, as we're trying to get uh, rental to go, we came to this incredible conclusion, which was that ironically doing both of them at the same time was preventing us from winning at either of them because yeah. we were trying to do two things simultaneously that were in conflict. It was confusing to customers, really hard to build a checkout process, really hard to manage inventory. There was all kinds of arguing about the metrics. And so it came to this conclusion is we have got to pick one and focus on it. And the one that we know we need to focus on is the rental because the sales is going to go away once everyone else enters the market. And it required walking away from the business model that was working because we could see it was a dead end. And, once you have the confidence to do that once, and we walked away from, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a month, which was nothing. But then when you jump fast forward 10 years and now Netflix is both streaming and shipping DVDs yeah. and they're going, wow, these two are actually by doing two things at once, we are making it even more difficult. We've got to prioritize one. And that, and they said, we're going to walk away from not entirely like we do from Not entirely, we're going to walk away from prioritizing anything to do with the DVD business and focus everything on the streaming. Every decision, oh, does this somehow conflict with, screw it, they're on their own. It's streaming. And that's the trick. You just got to have the confidence to go, I see where the customer wants me to go. And the customer doesn't give a crap about your business model, your quarterly earnings, your high-priced salesperson or your distributor is going to be mad at you. They, They know what they want. And if you don't deliver it, well, somebody else will.
0: Yeah, I like that. So, the last thing, let's talk about your podcast and the origin of it. What you're trying to do with it. That will never work. Launched a couple weeks ago,
1: I believe. Did yes. Where is it going? So it's interesting. It's it's not in some ways. It's new. In other ways, it's not new at all. Because you know, when I left Netflix fifteen some odd plus years ago, I didn't want to stop being an entrepreneur. And in addition to um, you know tr- getting something else going, I go, I'm going to help people. I mean, I wasn't saying it that way. I was really being selfish and going, how do I get my fix? How do I get my daily <laughs> entrepreneurial problem solving itch scratched? Yeah. And so I began saying yes to people when they asked for help. And yeah. you began taking calls, you take meetings, you agree to enter into longer term mentoring, and I've never stopped. So for 15 years, And I still do it. I mean, even as recently as last week, I probably did five hours of calls with different entrepreneurs who have different issues. The breakthrough was that about a year ago, I said, I'm gonna start taping these calls with people's permission and began recording the calls. Uh, And it was really interesting because for me, it was a learning experience of how to in 30 to 45 minutes grok someone's issue and then helpfully isolate quickly. And what's the one or two things I could help them with that would actually change their trajectory significantly? Yeah. Um, and the second big realization is that when I let other people listen to them, they were interesting. <laughs> I mean, they would empathize with the entrepreneur. They go, "Oh, I've had that exact same problem," and they'd resonate with the advice. And they'd laugh, and they'd—I f- mean, all that because some of these some of these businesses I'm talking to are pretty interesting, or yeah. strange, or dynamic. And I finally said, this should be something bigger. And, you know, for years, not years, three years, people have said, you should do a podcast. But they envisioned, as I did, that I would do a version of how I built this, that I would, you know, get my entrepreneur friends, successful entrepreneur friends and talk to them how they did it. And I said, first of all, I don't want to do that. It's it's done, done well. And that's not my passion here but i could totally get my arms around continuing to work with early stage people yeah. and and that's what that will never work the podcast is it's purely their phone calls their their zoom sessions with a different entrepreneur each each episode and basically learning what they're up to hearing what they're struggling with and then doing what i can to give them a nudge to give them the um, confidence to take the next step to say here's an approach, here's how to focus, um, here's how to take this side hustle and make it a real business, or if you have a real business, here's how to take it to the next level. Um, and it's been, I mean, I've done a bunch of them now. We have a lot in the can. Yeah, they're crazy. One of them, one like one young woman, for example, was a pickup artist coach. You know, helping <laughs> teach men to pick up women for ten years, and finally said, enough of this. I want to do a business which helps everyone establish deeper, more meaningful connections, men and women. I was trying to work on how to do her marketing funnel. Uh, Another woman has an erotic art gallery online and is struggling with how to use social media, which is the natural medium to promote the business, without stepping over the line and having them <laughs> all of a sudden uh, cancel her account, which has exactly. 70,000 people in it. Another person is launching a 60,000 square foot indoor uh, adventure, climbing like zip lines and repelling in Texas that yeah. serves beer. So I don't know what can go wrong with that, yeah. <laughs> but he was struggling not with the operations, but saying, how do I, Now, this is going to be open, you know, 80, 90 hours a week. How do I maintain some semblance of balance in my life? So these questions are the questions that everyone struggles with.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to watch that podcast take off because I think like many, when I looked into it, I was assuming that you're going to have big entrepreneurs talk about all the people that told them that wouldn't work in the beginning, how they were that. So I was excited to see that it's with people as they're going through it. And it's not the after story. It's the this is happening
1: right now story. So I'm it is because i i want people listen i want people to, i want people to be able to listen and be entertained you know that's life's too short but yeah. i want people to take something away from it that they can apply to themselves and and as i hope you picked up from the book the biggest thing i learned from this whole career as an entrepreneur is that all of these same tips and tricks and secrets that i learned that go into building a business are the exact same things you use to take any crazy idea you have and try and make it real, whether that's, you know, I want a better job or I want it. I want to be able to live in a different place or I want to make something else happen. It's the same process. And I think people can pick up a lot of those things as well as being entertained and amused um, by coming in and listening to the, that will never work podcast. I'm excited for it. Mark Randolph, everybody. Thank you for your time, Mark. I'm sure everybody's going (laughs) to love this. Oh, Chris, thank you for having me. This has been fun. I didn't end it. I just left hearing it.